This podcast is brought to you by House of Macadamias. I love macadamia nuts. They are incredibly good for you. They're the healthiest nut on a pound for pound basis, but they've always been hard to find and frankly, very expensive. House of Macadamias changes all that by going directly to farmers in South Africa to take the best nuts directly from each harvest. They turn them into incredible products, chocolate dip macadamias, protein bars, you name it. They taste incredible. I live off these products on a day-to-day basis. I'm a huge fan. Go to houseofmacadamias.com backslash Noah, use the code NOAH20 and you won't be disappointed. Welcome to the Uncharted podcast. Uncharted is a community of some of the world's best entrepreneurs, founders, investors, creatives, and beyond. At our dinners and at our annual summit in New York, we have dialogues with people who are truly at the top of their game across every industry. This podcast is designed really to offer the world and the audience a peek into the magical conversations that happen behind closed doors at our events, and more importantly, a peek into the brains of people who are truly at the top of their game. My goal with every guest is that if you know them well, you'll hear them talk about something or say something they've really never said before, and if you've never heard of them, you'll know exactly what makes them such a badass by the time the episode is over. Welcome to Uncharted. We're glad you're here. Michael Loeb uh, is behind or responsible for five unicorns now, uh, an investor, an entrepreneur, a builder, a builder, a mentor to many, a friend to many. Um, your career started when you got fired from Time Inc. You got revenge by selling a company back to them for $800 million. You went on to incubate Priceline. You went on to incubate a pharmacy benefits card, which was really the first of its kind, two pharmacy benefits cards, thank you, that were dropping a very non-trivial amount of money in the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions per year in profit. And then you've incubated several other companies, uh, including Fetch and a number of other ones that have valuations in the billions. <laughs> and along the way have funded many funds, funded many entrepreneurs, been a partner to many. Um, so it's safe to say you know your way around the business world on multiple levels. And I think the thing that's interesting is that there's a common thread amongst a little bit of consumer arbitrage in every step in your career, understanding a bit of consumer arbitrage, very good understanding of consumer acquisition costs and LTV, but you've been pretty dynamic across industries. You're not a one trick pony. Um, is that an accurate representation? Is that accurate in terms of how you would describe yourself? <clears throat> Um, I think you could have been a lot more glowing. <laughs> Sorry. Let okay. me start over. Uh, Michael's the best human who's out. That, that's that I, I think you wanted to say that walk the face of the face of the earth, Correct. right? Yeah. Okay, fine. Um, no, I do, by the way, you know, when I go meet my maker, I want to bring you, right? So just, I can introduce him it, to make sure he puts advocacy, you in the right one. Just yeah, advocacy, that's right. right? I got just your say, back. hey, right, exactly. That's right. So, that's what I do. I you. do the intro, yeah. Right. Thank you very much for that. Um, gee, where do I begin? Uh, yeah, you know, we, we don't have a swim lane, would be one thing to say about it, but we look for opportunity. This is with Loeb, what you're doing right yeah, now. That's correct. Can we hear the story of how you got fired from Time Inc.? Can we get deep into... <clears throat> okay. Yeah. How, how'd that happen? How old were you? What happened? How'd it yeah, go down? So uh, Time Inc. was about my first job, and I followed my dad into Time Inc. My dad was a journalist of some renown, some would say more than some, and... Um, I actually didn't want to work for Time Inc. I wanted to go to HBO, and HBO was Home box office. The right, HBO, right? And that was, you know, if you took, you know, Netflix and Slack and about ten other really yummy companies and put it all together, 
that was HBO. Like HBO was the place to be. And um, I tried and tried and tried to get hired by HBO and, you know, made it very clear, you know, I would sharpen pencils, empty waste baskets, whatever job you wanted to give me and um, was not able to make an impact. And then Time Inc. was starting a magazine, the Can't Miss Magazine TV Cable Week. And it put together the two things that Time Inc. did, which was a magazine and they did cable. And they were the second at the time, second largest cable operator. And going back in the Wayback Machine, and this is a remarkable thing to think about, but TV Guide had a 25% penetration among households in the United States. So uh, we got about 135 million homes now, but in the 80s it was about 100 million, and they had a circulation of 25 million. So one out of four homes in America would get TV Guide. And TV Guide would only cover NBC, you know, CBS, uh, and ABC. That was it. And they would have Channel 13, and at Channel 11 they'd have the local stations, but half dozen, that was it. And they ignored cable. And that had a cascading effect because if TV Guide did not list cable, cable didn't exist, which means any advertiser worth its salt was not going to, you know, advertise on TNN or ESPN or anything on cable. Now, we direct to the consumer marketers. This we is Time Inc. This is Time when Inc. When you're at Time Inc. Got when it. I'm at Time Inc. Um, <clears throat> we at... Um, we and direct to the consumer marketing really didn't care because we put an ad on and we knew exactly that, you know, there were eyeballs because these were people who were calling up and they're buying what you were selling. Based on the ad. Based on the ad, right? Based on the ad. And um, I can't wait for role reversal and I get to correct you. This is going to be totally cool. Let's do cool. it. Yeah, yeah. I'm in. Okay. I'm ready. So, uh, but um, I was able to get hired by TV Cable Week, a Time Inc. launch. And the ambition of TV Cable Week is it was going to have cable listings when TV Guy didn't. And it was so, something you know, self-serving because if you had the listings, you could get the ads and they had big cable holdings. So it was all very symbiotic and circular. Um, the only trouble was to affect that required the type of technology that just did not exist back when they were starting that magazine because you had to have little tiny print runs and you couldn't really have a web press. And if you want to know in your head what a web press looks like, just go to like an old, uh, you know, Superman episode and you see kind of the newspapers kind of coming off the line sure. versus, you know, what it's done now, it's all done by laser, right? So you can have little tiny small batches and it would work. But they try to get it done with old technology and imagine these cable systems some of them were 10,000 subscribers, right? And then you had to map out the cable box, right, to uh, the listings in the, in the magazine. And it was, you know, an impossible task. But um, they told themselves it wasn't. Now, in Time Inc. arrogance, they were so sure that this would work that Time Inc. had a prohibition um, in terms of how many Time Inkers could join this new magazine that they were launching because it was a can't-miss magazine, hmm. right? So the prohibition was no more than 10% of the people that were going to work at TV Cable Week came from Time, Inc., 
because that's all you need because this was just going to work because it was magazines and cable combined and that's the two things that we did. Um, and that's how I was able to get hired, right? And I didn't really want to go in the magazine business like my dad, um, but it had the right middle name, Cable. And I thought, okay, I'm going to start there. Because that's the future? Yeah, well, no, because that was how I could arc to HBO. Ah, got it. Right? Because it was a neighborhood play. You got know, it. Start there, you know, pretend that I really liked it. Nice little lily pad over to Bingo, HBO. Bingo, right, okay. over to HBO. So now you're at Time Inc. Got now it. I'm at Time Inc. I'm at Time Inc. And I'm working at TV Cable Week, which is also known as the ill-fated TV Cable Week. Because in about nine months, they lost $47 million, which at that time was a tremendous amount of money. Like, that was an unconscionable amount of Still money. Still a large sum. And it was the first black eye that Time Inc. ever had in the magazine business. And you got to understand what a behemoth, what a 900-pound gorilla they were at the time, which is if you took the next three publishers, you know, and combined them in terms of revenue, they still did not equal Time Inc., Right, they had everything. Yeah, I mean, they were just yeah. you know, the nine hundred. It was like comparing, you know, Google to sure. another search yeah. engine. Right. Yeah. I mean, there was no number two, and um, so the can't miss magazine indeed missed. Um, you learn a lot, by the way, when you're in an environment like that, and. Um, one of the things that they did have was fiefdoms, and one of the things Time Inc. did was they didn't let you hire anybody from Time Inc., but what they did do is raid Harvard Business School, right? And they got a bunch of you know Harvard MBAs, and they threw them into this magazine, and so we had Can't Miss Bra Brainiacs working on this Can't Miss magazine, so it just couldn't miss, hmm. right? Uh, except that it missed. It, it missed, and the Harvard MBAs did not you know, do it. Couldn't pull their head out of you know what. Yeah. And this is, yeah, yeah. You know, PG thirteen. This is PG thirteen, yeah, yeah, so we're not going to say it. Okay, it can be rated R. <coughs> Go okay. for it. It can be. Yeah, okay, right? but they, um, but they, but and um, I went and I complained to my dad about this very same thing. I said, Dad, that the Harvard MBAs, yeah, you you can't imagine what's going on here. Like you know, this department and this department and this department, they knives out. They're feuding all the time. They're not talking to one another. There is no, you know, there is no camaraderie there is no sharing and he stopped me after a couple of minutes of my rant fetching about it my rant and he said well let me ask you a question any deaths <laughs> and i said no what do you mean he said well did anybody murder anybody and i go no and he said it's a startup you're ahead <laughs> so anyway um but startups are fraught yeah um, you and I know that yeah, startups are fraught and, um, I'll arc back to timing. So, um, TV cable, we closed. Um, and what timing did was have a hiring freeze and we got priority and I landed in sports illustrated and rose through the ranks, um, was able to do some very creative things at sports illustrated. I was there at a time when there was the emergence of cable at the same time of the emergence of video, right? Now, back in the day, video was not a sell-through. It wasn't streaming, right? And it wasn't a sell-through market. It was a rental market. Blockbuster owned everything. And you didn't buy a movie. You rented a movie. And if you wanted to buy a movie, um, and uh, if you wanted to buy a movie, it cost you 
right? So in the consumer's head, anything on video that you wanted to buy was $69.95. Um, we were able to create a lot of premiums for videos. So if anybody knows the bloopers videos, the football bloopers, basketball bloopers. Those are iconic. I know. Yeah. Those were all invented by Sports Illustrated, yeah. right, as premiums for Sports Illustrated, hmm. right? And all you do is show this video. The presumption was, well, this has got to cost 70 bucks, right? And it was free with a subscription to Sports Illustrated mm. that you can get in three installments of 9.95. Was that right? your idea? Kind of. And, um, and I, by the way, was able to negotiate with the leagues. Um, I have, you know, a great story about negotiating with the NBA, which had absolutely no footage or absolutely no video product, whatever, but had... 400,000 hours of footage. Right. They had every game filmed since the, you know, there was a professional basketball. And um, it was, and I cut an unbelievable deal with the NBA. And I thought I just took this whole league to the, you know, cleaners. What I didn't know is that they were flat on their ass. There were 17 teams at the time. Nine of them were underwater. Hmm. They really, the survivability of basketball back then was in question. And what they wanted was all those GRPs, because we just... What know, is GRP? Uh, gross rating points. All the ads. Got right? it. All the media weight. They wanted all the media weight, and they wanted every den in America to have, and this was VHS, right? Not that anybody knows that, but they had a spine that was like, you know, three quarters of an inch wide, and they wanted to be able to say NBA, right? And have that in everybody's den. And little did I know, and they were like very content to just about give away their product, and I had the opportunity to direct, right, the content of all these crazy videos that were sold as premiums to Sports Illustrated. So the combination of these incredible premiums with, by the way, very inexpensive media launched Sports Illustrated into orbit. And um, we went from, you know, we added like a million and a half to our circulation in no time flat, which won me the opportunity, not the opportunity, it was a force march to launch Entertainment Weekly. So I was known as Launch Boy. I did launch SI for Kids when I was at Sports Illustrated. Uh, had something to do with turning the sw swimsuit issue into the franchise that it became. And um, so, you know, um, reputation as Launch Boy, to which I say in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, mm -hmm. right? I mean, Time Inc. was not known for its invention. <clears throat> so, um, I was tapped to launch, launch Entertainment Weekly. How old were you at the time when they tapped you for that? I, like thirty-five. Okay. And 35. Um, so you're you're technically not an entrepreneur outside of oh, time. No, no, yet. no, no. You're I'm a, you've been at corporate nine to five, working your ass off. Crushed. Yeah, but I had fun. I mean, sure. you know, the football phone, sneaker phone, yeah. all those. You did you some know, amazing videos. shit, and you did. But you're still you're still working a corporate job. Right? I'm, uh, absolutely, I'm working a corporate job, and I was something of a fish out of water because. At Time Inc., at the time, it was, you know, be collegial, yeah. right? Be well-liked. Don't rock the boat. You know, grow, you know, grow your franchise by, you know, four, five, six percent a year. Yeah. Um, and don't, this this can be R-rated. Yeah, yeah. Don't fuck it up. Right. Right? Don't fuck it up. Was it was that playing a, defense. Was that a way to get rich for that, people at that well, time? Well, yeah, because you got stock. Yeah. Right? And you would retire... You probably didn't get to 65, you would re retire at 55, and sure. you'd have a nice house in the country, and blah, 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 blah. And that was, they called it the time of your life building. It was time life, but yeah. the time of your life building. Mm. And yeah, they played very well. They The perks were unbelievable. Yeah. 
You got to eat at any restaurant you want. Nobody would question your expense account. Um, so it's they were comfy, making, you're making good money, you're on a path. Here was a company. I mean, let's take People Magazine. People Magazine was, do, and People Magazine was the joke of yeah. Time, Inc. Because, you know, it was people, right? It wasn't time, it wasn't fortune, it wasn't money, it was people. 700 million in revenue made about 400 million in profit. People Magazine. People Magazine. It was just a machine. Sounds like a good right. joke. Right. Good joke. Yeah. So <clears throat> anyway, um, Entertainment Weekly, and at the time it was Time Warner, so a lot of synergies there, right? You can write about all the movies. Sure. And they also own Turner, and you could write about all the TV shows, yeah. right? So It's a good bet. Good bet. And um, they teamed me up with an editor who was something of an intellectual. <clears throat> so his idea of entertainment was polo and ballet, right? Okay. Maybe fencing, right? Riveting. I know. And so for me, what Entertainment Weekly was, swap out the big three sports for the big three forms of entertainment. Yeah. And that was, and you would do it the same way. You would do, if there was a big movie coming out, you would take the star and it would be a you know, 5,000 word article with 20 pictures and you would start with their high school drama cover. And this guy wanted to do polo and fencing? He really wanted to do, yes. The first cover, first cover, launch cover, and that's very important because you sell yeah, a magazine. Yeah, that's the first one, yeah. The introduction. And what you do is you would sell it on a risk-free basis. Like, wave your hand, don't pay now, get the first few issues, make sure you like it, and then pay. Right? That was the original model at the time. Because this is important. This is where we get into... Yeah. Okay. So that, the, that was always the original model. The original model, that, model of how magazines and most... Magazines and a lot of other subscriptions things. Subscriptions were yeah, sold. Not even subscription. Yeah, but take just, the first one for free. If you like it, come back and it's try a it brand, again. It's a brand new thing, yeah. right? I mean, you know, take my word for it. You're going to love it. Well, how do I know? I mean, do I have a lot of, like, past issues that I can... I have no idea. So, right. you know, um, this is springing from the brains of the editor, and you're sure. going to love it, and try it, sure. and try it on a risk-free basis. So... Um, the early covers are very, very, very important. Okay. The first cover of Entertainment Weekly was Katie Lang. Anybody know Katie Lang? Katie Lang was Canadian and she was a country and Western singer. And she was, and this was before Ellen, right? She was gay and proud, like really proud. And they intentionally pictured her with a big zit on her chin, right? Because you know, this wasn't supposed to be pretty. This was a different type of entertainment, right? And on the inside of the magazine, they had some pictures of her and her lover, and they had an old-style barber chair, and she was getting an old-style shave with the big shaving cream and that single blade, right? And, you know, all I can say is I just, Nebraska, right? I'm O for Nebraska, right? I'm O for Alabama, right? <laughs> I mean, there's, you can take a look at the country, you can do, draw an L, right? Yeah. You get started in North Dakota, you go down to Louisiana, you go right you know, to Florida. Yeah. And I, all those, I'm just gone, yeah. right? So, you know, I'm saying, well, can we, can we get like a big star? Can we get that? But that was not what the editor envisioned. Um, he also reserved a page for himself that was his editorial. And he wrote, Literally, the headline on this was, I hate baseball. And I'm thinking there's only 150 million people in the country that you who just love pissed off. Yeah. baseball. Yeah. 
and he's writing about how tedious and awful and horrendous baseball is. you got to be an idiot to watch baseball. I mean, watch paint dry instead. What a way to launch a magazine. Exactly. Yeah. And that was like the third issue. And he ended with, there's only one redeeming quality of baseball, and that is when you have a rain out, they have great old movies. Right? And I'm thinking, oh, Cute. My, I mean, just right. Yeah. So that magazine, so you're selling everybody on a risk-free basis. Tried, you like it. It was not what I sold to them. It was not what they expected. And payment rates were dreadful, right? Because people tried it and they didn't like it. They didn't like Got it. it. Payment rates were dreadful. Newsstand sale rates were horrible, right? But in the end, I'm accountable for all that. Right. And we lost a year is how you think about it. Uh, we had budgeted, I had budgeted $50 million for the launch and you could essentially burn that money to a crisp, but I knew how to play the time ink game. And I had some chips from, you know, my prior good works and you don't confront management with the truth. You confront them with it like an inch at a time, right? I need five more million. I need five. And you do that again. And <laughs> I knew that I was going to get caught, and I knew that I was going to get fired, but I also knew that this could be an important magazine if it was reset and done right, and um, I also knew that it needs special remediation, so I did something unusual, which was introduce a new type of premium for Entertainment Weekly, and that new type of premium was music. And so I created the Rock Archives, 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? Um, rights like that were never, you know, were n never adjudicated before. Um, music has been used as a premium, but only for music. So believe it or not, as far as the lawyers were concerned, that's a whole new set of rights. This was music used as a premium, not for music, but for a magazine. And the other thing is that you know, in kind of the thinking or the playbook of magazines, you don't introduce a premium until a magazine is mature, right? Until such time as you've discovered your audience and you're really talking to the people who already know you and might have subscribed before, you need a reason to get them back. So this was way early because this was when the magazine was only months old, but it was flailing and failing. And I knew, Noah, that if it ended its first year at under 300,000, right? Copy circulation, sold. Circulation, okay. right? Copy sold in a week, right? Like an average sale through between subscriptions and newsstand. And newsstand was about nothing because our sell through was dreadful. Sure. Under 300,000, they would kill it. And over 500,000, they would keep it, right? Keep it going. And in the middle was the DMZ, right? The Miller Tri Zone, you really don't know. And so I was determined to get it over 500,000 by the end of the year. So I created this premium rock archives, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, it had 10 songs from each decade, right? And I put it in three CDs. CDs were a novelty at the time. They could have all fit into one, right? But to have three looked totally cool. And believe it or not, it went like quadruple platinum, right? It counted because <laughs> Like two million copies, no kidding, two million copies of those things sold. Did the artists make money? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you had to pay the sure. residual. Yeah, the sync rights or whatever. I yeah. did, by the way, learn something about that because some of the things that the lawyers would say out loud, take this song, not this song, because this song, they have an agent that's really lazy. Yeah. 
and and they're not. You know, I've seen that. Yeah. yeah, it's a cluster. It's a total it's a cluster. cluster. Total, and it and still like is in many ways. I know yeah. that's the reason. This is why NFTs, 100%. right? NFTs are really yeah. because that's just going to fix that. Yeah. Right? And but it's so you can come hard. Back to that one, but yeah. Yeah, but it's so hard. I mean, you know that that background vocal type. I mean, yeah. what what do you People, want? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. So anyhow, so you um, so you crushed it on the CD thing. I did, but that. Um, so why'd you get fired? <laughs> I crushed it on the CD thing, but they had to blame somebody because we were way, 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 way over budget, and it was my fault. In fact, sadly, uh, I was fired just as the TV ad I made and the premium I made was going on air. So, so like, I was fired in October. And, wow. Uh, yeah. Now, I will tell you, I will tell you a story about Rich Vogel. Yes, I, I want to get into this, okay. but I have a quick question before you tell that story. Right. So you get fired. How old are you? Uh, 36. 36. You'd made some good money at Time Inc. But not, not really. Not change your no, life no, no, on no. it. You're not set. You're far from it. No, no, no. Is I that mean, rock bottom for you? Oh, yeah. That was that was rock yeah, bottom. It was. It wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, I kind of. I, I did kind of see it the right way as an opportunity. Somebody, someone who came to one of our last Uncharted dinners, uh, who's known you for a while, said that you had an ambition when he knew you when you were young to be a millionaire by the time you were 30. And so safe to say you got fired at 37. You didn't hit that goal. No. And, no. and fairly far off from it. Obviously, it's worked out pretty well, but <coughs> fairly. Yeah. F- so you hit rock bottom at 37. 36. 36, yeah, sorry. Yeah, 36. Yeah. Sure. So Rich Vogel story? Rich Vogel story. All right. So Rich for Vogel. the audience. For the audience. Ah. Rich Vogel is Michael's current business partner for a well, long current, time. current, like 30 years. Yeah, 30 yeah. years. He's current and, and former business partner for a long time. Amazing guy. Amazing operator. He's, so. your, he's your right hand. Was actually hired by my wife at Time Inc. Margie Loeb hired Rich Fogel. Okay. And I swiped Rich from Margie. But Rich followed me from Time Inc. into Synapse slash Priceline into Loeb Enterprises. And he is my yang to my ying. Sure. Uh, He is the guy who can actually read a a legal contract, pass page, like one and a half. Pass paragraph one and a half. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Sure. So... But Rich, you know, you get fired and I got fired. I got fired ugly. I got fired ugly because Time Inc. had to say to its advertisers, look, every, you know, there's nothing wrong in Denmark. Everything is totally copacetic, right? Everything is fine. They not only fired me, but also the editor at the same time. So everything is fine. Everything, it's fine. It's fine. Everything is good. And then, right, they had to capitulate and say, no, not everything is good. Houston, we got a problem. Houston, we got a problem. So Houston, we got a problem, but we solved it. We exercised the tumor from the body, and now everything is going we to be kicked this dude Michael out. He's Michael, out. Yeah, kick this dude Michael out. We're so good. everything is going to be everything's good. gravy. We're going to reset, and um, <clears throat> that story got coverage, and it wasn't really about me. It was is timing going to shutter? Wow, it's you know, yeah. a big Entertainment deal. Weekly, yeah. right? Because wow. they shuttered TV Cable Week. Is this going to be the second black eye that they're going to get in pretty quick succession? Not pretty quick, but you know, yeah, the second black reasonably eye. sure. And um, so it really was about that. But you know, here it was, and I was cast out. Now at the time, Noah, no one survived being cast out of timing. No one. You were, thrown in, you were thrown into the desert, and that was it. You were you just would it's like being fired start. from Goldman or Meta or something. Yeah, yeah. you just you, know, you just didn't live. You just if you weren't expected. Career's live, over. Were, career's over. Got it. And um, so I'm fired. But when you're fired and you're fired quickly, there's still some things you got to find out and you got to know. And like 
Rich Vogel packed my shit up and put it in a box and brought it down to me. But Rich, um, whenever I had a question, I would call Rich. Why did you need to know stuff when you were fired? Um, you know what folks are saying about you. What was there anybody else? Just stuff. Yeah, you know, just stuff. Yeah. And um, so at the time, and you got to know the iconic time life building which was built in 1959 and is one of the great steel and class buildings on 6th Avenue and 50th Street. And um, they had a giant bank, a giant bank of phone booths. And they had a giant bank of phone booths because the reporters would come back and they had to file a story. So, you know, they would pick up the phone and they would call. And, you know, old style, right? You'd pump quarters in the top and yada, yada, yada. So um, back in the day, everybody had an office, right? And Vogel had an office, right? I had a bigger office, but Vogel had an office. <laughs> Just to be clear. Just to be clear. And I'd call Rich Vogel, and he'd pick up the phone, and he'd say, Julie, so nice to hear from you. Hey, you know what? Um, can I get back to you? <laughs> Click. In his top drawer, this is, no, this is no joke, in his top drawer, he had a roll of quarters, right? And he would go downstairs to one of the phone booths, Pump in a quarter, give me a call, and say, what can I do for you? Hmm. And he was the only one. Only one who would talk to That's me. That's risky for him, no? Oh, yeah, because it's like the mafia. You know, when you kick kick him out, they're you know, not. Wow. Person not grata. So, um, anyhow, so. So he stuck by you. He really did. Stuck by me. And then um, it became, what do I do next? And the next of it was trying to start the business outside of Time Inc. that I literally was trying to start inside of Time Inc. And the insight that I had is that Time Inc. jointly managed two magazine properties with American Express. And that was food and wine and travel and leisure, right? So American Express, you know, knew a lot of things about travel and they knew a lot of things about dining, right? Because that was the T&E card. It's not known as a credit card. It's known as a T&E card. So they knew those things, and they had a magazine really to propagate their own products and romanticize their own, you know, what they did. And, but they didn't know a thing about publishing, and they didn't know a thing about printing or distribution, so they had a JV, you know, with Time Inc. on those two properties. And I was able to get a peek inside of the barrel and see the power of what they had. American Express. American Express. And the key power that they had, the key superpower is... They would sell, right? They would sell a magazine, right? And what they would do is just, in normal touch points with the consumer, they would say, how would you like travel and leisure, right? And because they're talking to them all the time, they're sending out bills all the time, right? And, but once you said yes to that, it went on to your mm. American Express card, right? American Express card, and I got to see the retention dynamics. I mean, it was intuitive, but I got to see the real numbers. Mm. And what I wanted to do was, if you had that VIN diagram, right, and if you wanted to say that top and bottom, I had one credit card and then I had all credit cards and then I had one publisher and all publishers, I wanted to go from the one one box to the every every box. Right. To be abundantly clear, the key insight there was that you figured out before the rest of the world that trying to make it as easy as possible to renew a subscription or add a subscription was the key. Yeah. So 
backing up a little bit from that or unpacking that point, um, with the model then, you would subscribe and you'd get peppered with renewal notices. Correct. Right? And almost immediately. Pain in the ass is a Pain in the ass. You never want to do that. More than that, it was you had to take an action right. to maintain the That's relationship. That's the key. Had to take an action. So inertia was your enemy, right? But in a credit card sale, inertia is your ally. Because you got the credit card. Your ally. So do nothing and the relationship maintains versus do nothing and the and the relationship gets interrupted. So simple, but a tectonic shift right. in behavior and now, efficiency. The other thing, and this was fairly obvious, but when you asked anybody in the magazine industry, right, why don't you do it that way? And they say, well, credit cards and magazines don't mix, right? And it's true. They tried it many, many times, which was in the bottom of the renewal notice, it knew it, notice it say, put in your, you know, your credit card number and we'll bill it to your credit card, right? People didn't do it. Nobody did it. Why would, why you? would you do that? Yeah, why would you do it? Why would you do that? Right. And so how I thought about that, Noah, is that it was marketing from the outside in, and I wanted to market from the inside out. I didn't want to be the magazine asking for the credit card. I wanted to be the credit card asking for the magazine. And where do you find credit cards? From credit card companies. So with Synapse, right, the idea was you went to all the credit card companies. Synapse is Michael's first company. Thank you. Philly wow, Hudson. look at that. You are so good. I got to make sure Shit. people know what the hell you're talking right. about. Synapse was the name of the first company. Synapse which is was... the company you let you fired from Time Inc. And, and I started Synapse. And you started Synapse with this key insight of right. inertia should be your friend. And and also how how the mag, how how the credit card industry worked, and they are like the aliens in Independence Day, right? And those aliens in Independence Day. Uh, what did they do? They went planet by planet, and they would suck out all the resources and then go to the next planet. So how the credit card industry thought, they would attack industries. They would attack industries. Now, many people listening are not old enough to know this, but there was a time that it was inconceivable that you could pay for your groceries, right, with a credit card. Didn't exist. That you could pay for your gasoline with a credit card. Did not exist. And by the way... What the credit card companies had to do for gasoline is they had to trade, they had to change their rates, the inter, with a so-called interchange fee, because gas makes no money whatsoever, and they had to like skinny that up because the math wouldn't work otherwise. Yeah. So they would they would think about that. They're very deliberate. Like, what pocket don't we have, right? So I could go, right, to the credit card industry and say, you don't have magazine subscription sales. And they would say, have you seen how big that is? And do you know how big gasoline and groceries are? And I'd say, yes, but it's something you don't have. Maybe it's a small planet, right? But it's incremental. It's incremental. Take it. And not only that, it does wonderful things for you because everybody had five credit cards. You wanted to have this cycle. You wanted to stay relevant. And if you had a charge, recurring charge on that card, that's a way to stay relevant, mm. right? So... You would ha you you were I was able to tickle some keys by going strategic with them, and um, but then it became how did you prosecute the customer? How did you get to their customer? The credit card's customer. That's correct. Card how holder. do you get to the credit? How did you get to the cardholder? Now the interesting thing is there was a clutch of marketers that like feasted right on 
you know, the credit card customers or jointly sold with credit card customers. And every touch point, they would sell their product because the credit card was out and all you needed to get was a yes, right? And there were giant companies. And they, what they had done, the credit card companies would ladle out these touch points so that, for example, you could only have one outbound call when we were allowed to do that a month. That was it. You were allowed to you know, have one inbound call or two inbound calls a month. That was it. Now, what's an inbound call? You're calling up, you're yeah. on the corner, and you say, where's my closest branch? Boom, sure. right? And believe it or not, they would cross-sell something. So all of those channels, all the roads, all the paths to the member, right, were blocked, you know, and, you know, everybody else had, you know, paid for those in advance. You weren't going to get in. So then it became, okay, I need a new form of media. And something came out of that thinking, which was back in the day, there were 600 million credit card bills being mailed every month, 600 million. Piece of paper goes in your mailbox. Yeah. At the time it was blank. It was a piece of paper. It had all your charges, right? It had a reply envelope, right? Embedded in it, what you were supposed to do is rip up, rip off the top, that was called the remittance form, and put that into that envelope, that nested envelope with a check, and mail it back to the credit card company. That's what you did. You could pay the whole thing or a minimum or anything in between, but that's what you did, right? So 600 million went out every month mm. and 599 million came back, right? Because who's gonna ignore that, right? So 600 million went out. It's a captive audience and a big one. And you know what I discovered? One day I weighed one of those envelopes. You know what it weighed? Seven tenths of an ounce, right? Seven tenths of an ounce. That is like a plane flying with 30% of the seats empty because you had one ounce, right? That's the, that's the USPS that's limit. Those, I've got to explain what USPS because they don't be know clear. what it is. Correct. That's the post office. That's the post office. The post office. That's what they can let. Otherwise, you have to pay more. You got to pay more. Correct. Right? So and that's your it's threshold. a big step up. You got like up to an doubled. ounce. You got right. up to an ounce. You got up to an ounce. Free game. Fair game. Free game. But every, and they all weigh the same. It was amazing. They all weighed the same. So what did I do? I went to the credit card companies and I said, I'm going to buy three-tenths of an ounce 600 million times a month. Okay? And they would charge me about nothing. I paid about two cents for that. Per? Probably. Two cents. Now, it cost them, you know, like a dollar to get that envelope out, right? And postage, even back then, was, you know, not free, right? And so... But that was a lesson, by the way, in remnant pricing. And, and excess capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Because when it's found money, right, people don't do the same type of calculus. They don't take an average, hmm. right? They just say, any money I get for that falls right to the bottom. And we were able to persuade them that it was strategic. It was strategic. Right. And not because we're selling a magazine and the magazine was going to be on the credit card. It's going to keep that relationship active. Well, you were doing nothing and now you're doing something. That's mm -hmm. really the key. That's the key. Now, right? another kind of key was that I wanted that media coming back in that envelope, right? That reply envelope. I didn't want to have somebody like roll and fold and stick and put a separate stamp and come in. I wanted to go back in the stream, right? The stream. And that was tricky. 
because none of the machines in any of the credit card companies that would disembowel one of these envelopes, right? There was something that would literally go down a track. It was this thing that was the size of three or four kitchen tables. And one operator would have it, and they would stack a bunch of things in the hopper. A good operator could have 3,000 envelopes in an hour, right? And it would come down, you know, this conveyor, and it would shred up, you know, shred the envelope into little tiny pieces, splay it open so an operator could pick out the check sure. and pick out the remittance form and key in what the check amount was. It wasn't read automatically. And now, all of a sudden, I was introducing a third piece of paper. And that was people subscribing to new magazines. Correct. Correct. In that, that that's next what you wanted to paper. come back. Right. Got it. And it's a um, non-trivial ask. Non-trivial ask. And I literally had to go to all these, you know, places. It's a lot of stakeholders. Crystal buyer. Lake, Nevada. Yeah. Right. To like look, you know, recal- help them recalibrate the machines and teach them. Here's a third piece of paper, and I had to make a little cubby, and you know. Sally, the operator, would pluck it out and put it into the little copy. And then I had to have Dean with a FedEx envelope on the third shift run around and stuff all these things into a number, a numbered FedEx envelope. Yeah. And then when we got all those things, <clears throat> we had to make sure that all the precincts reported, right? And we'd go back and we would say, you know what, you know, like South Dakota didn't come in today. And we'd call up South Dakota and we'd say, what happened? And they say, ah, you know what? Noah was sick. He called in sick. So nobody else knew how to do this except for Noah. But he's probably going to be in tomorrow, right? So that was the stuff that we had to contend with. Yeah. But that was what got Synapse at start. But you, so you launched the thing, and what happens? Is it immediately successful? Immediately. Revolutionary concept, running inventory. It's, it works. It's so quaint to think about, but this was, this was bootstrapped. Yeah, I was going to say that you didn't raise money for Synapse. No, 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 no money. Did you get whatsoever. loans from your family or anything? Nope. Uh, so what you... I did get, I went back to my former employer, and they were, even though the press was not very generous, they kind of felt bad about it. They actually gave me three years of pay. Hmm. Which, As severance. Yeah. That's a, well, three years severance? Three years severance. But that was because I did some really pretty good work at Sports Illustrated, but also... We both knew exactly what was happening. My head was being put on a pike, and it wasn't really my fault. But Scapegoat. They, they needed to say something to restore faith in the publication. So, so they give you three years of severance, which is enough to get Synapse off the ground. Yes, but I didn't use it to put Synapse off the ground. I bought a townhouse on the west side. It was enough <laughs> for a deposit for a townhouse on the west side. But How did you I did fund go, Synapse? Pardon me? How did you fund Synapse? Well, here's... I'm about to tell you the story. All right, all right, all right. I'll shut up. Sorry. So I did go back. I did go back to my former employer, and um, I asked for two things. I said, "Look, because I found out the hard way. It's so interesting when you go from a company like Time Inc. and you um, start a company, you go from being a big swinging, you know what, to a nobody, right? And so the same people who would wine and dine me." You know, and I'd say, hey, the same printers, I'd say, hey, I'm, I'm going to have a job and I'd like you to print it. They would say, who are you? Do I know you? And I'd say, I want, you know, the terms that we had at Time Inc. I want like 90 day terms. Like, you know, they were just glad that Time Inc. would pay it all. And they would say, no, no, cash up front. And we're doubling the price, right? So I went back to Time Inc. and I said, look, I want to run it through you, right? And they said yes to that. And then I said, and I want 15,000 bucks, 15,000. As a grant. As a grant, 
as a grant. And they actually asked me, what do we get for 15,000? I said, you get nothing, right? If I build this company, it's gonna be really good for you and very good for subscription sales. And you know, if it fails, well, you know, 15 grand, what does that mean to you? And um, they said, we get nothing for that? And I said, you get nothing for that. Are, are you, you shake, sure? Are you shaking in your boots when no. you tell them this? No. Who cares? <laughs> and then, right, who cares? <laughs> I figured I'd find the 15,000 somewhere. Uh. So we're, we're getting nothing. Yep, you're getting nothing. And I walked out thinking, well, shit, I'm not getting that check. Guess what? Like three days later, I got a fucking check for 15,000 bucks. Hmm. And that's what started the company. Wow. Literally, yeah. Wow. And, uh, yeah, you don't do that anymore, right? We have these giant losses, and they go on forever. And, you know, you look at companies like Uber, never made any money, right? It's still worth $40 billion. And yeah. So it's not how we so used, used to do it. So Synapse is making money from day one. Day one. Very day one. impressive. And how long, how how quickly did, what did you do in revenue year one? Well, $7 million. $7 million year one. It's a yeah. good first year. And yeah. you made a couple. Year two, we had a little bit of trouble because we lost our biggest client, Citibank. Year three, we were at 32 million bucks. Okay, so year one, seven, year two, tough whatever. year, whatever. I year think we did 11, but 33. Year three, $32 million. Yeah. Yeah. And Making money. When did you sell the company? I sold the company actually in you know a couple of parts, but 2001. Which is how many years after you started it? Nine. Nine years. All right, so you ran it for nine years. Yeah. And you, what was revenue at its peak? 400. 400 million. Yeah. And, and you it. sell it in 2001. Mm-hmm. To Time Inc. To Time Inc. for eight hundred million bucks. Eight hundred million bucks. So yeah. the company that fired you and gave you a fifteen thousand dollar grant. Yeah, buys it, it was back. an earnout. It was sure. an earnout, but yeah, turned yeah. out to be about an eight hundred million dollar sale. Eight. Not all of it went to me, of course, because my partner in that business was Jay Walker, and sure. uh, but uh, and we gave a chunk. One one proud thing is that when we did sell the company, we made twenty six millionaires overnight, hmm. which was kind of nice. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm very, you know, I'm proud of that. I, we did do a good job of tying everybody together and making everybody, you know, feel very connected. And that is, I think, an example of that. So you sell the company mm-hmm. for an earn out of 800 million in 2001. Yep. Um, last check in 2006. Last five check year, in 2006, five year, five year earn out. Mm-hmm. At what point or at what number for you mm-hmm. were you like, okay, I'm good, I'm good, I don't, I never felt that. I don't feel that now. I mean, I just don't think that way. I mean, I just... But you didn't have a moment when you sold the company when you're like, I hit rock bottom in 36. I was freaking fired from this company. You no, know, I really didn't. You never really thought, didn't. I my family's taken care of. It's all good. Yeah, I did feel that. When when did that happen? I, well, you know, probably with the first big payment. First um, big payment. And I, you know, was able to say that to my wife is I never have to have another good idea again. I just can't be really, really stupid ever. Just don't screw this up. Just don't screw it up. Hmm. Um, But, you know, that's kind of not how I'm constructed. I just, it's it's very interesting about an entrepreneur and it's kind of a curse, which is that you celebrate the victories for about five minutes and you suffer the defeats for five years. Hmm. And it it sucks, but that's kind of the calculus. So I want to share one other thing, which is when Synapse was launched, there are many reasons why everybody told me that this is stupid, right? Um, but object lesson, 
the key reason why it was stupid was there were two giant competitors, right? They, in the parlance of the magazine industry, they called them agents. That just meant that they weren't a publisher themselves and they would sell, you know, hundreds of magazines at a throw. At Synapse, we had 5,000 magazines that we would sell, not in a single piece of promotion, but, you know, 5,000 were customers. So they were known as agents, and there were two giant ones. And some people listening could remember Ed McMahon and could remember PCH and the $25 million sweepstakes and the prize patrol and all that stuff. Those were the competitors. Each of those companies were $200 million big, and they were very aggressive. And everybody said, you're going to get squished. You're going to get squished. And I said, you don't get it. And what you don't get is that my guns were two and a half longer, two and a half times longer. My lifetime value, by putting on a credit card, by taking inertia, and moving it from your mortal enemy to your best friend, I added, you know, I, I multiplied lifetime value, right, by two and a half times. And what did that mean? That meant that I could spend two and a half times what they could on acquisition, hmm. right? So I didn't have to be smarter. I didn't have to be as smart. I just couldn't be two and a half times more dumb, right? Because I had two and a half times the scratch to go after the same customers, right? And that is kind of an interesting insight into business models and also an interesting insight into other things in history. And a good example, by the way, is Napoleon, right? So Napoleon took over Europe, right? And he took over Europe because his cannon shot further and was more accurate. So what he would do is go out of the range of the English guns, which were in the range of his guns, would pummel the enemy, right? And only then, when they were about dust, did he throw in the cavalry and, like, they would do cleanup, right? So, you know, it's a if, very it's a very unique Lobian, if you will, insight of this margin, understanding margin, customer acquisition costs, and lifetime value. When you walk the audience through it right now, it sounds incredibly simple, right? Customers mm. pay me for longer than they pay my competitor, which means I can pay more to acquire them, which means I can get more of them over time. Remarkably simple concept in theory. In practice, finding it and finding new opportunities for it. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Yeah, and I, I will say that, you know, great companies um, are really built on several inventions, several key inventions. And um, you can probably take a look at the great ones and figure all that out, right, and kind of deconstruct that. I'll use Google as an example. One invention was a search engine, but it took Eric Schmidt to figure out how to monetize that, hmm. right? So those are two separate inventions, right? Coming up with the search piece and then kind of complementing that with the advertising and how to stack rank different advertisers was a, like a double invention. So Synapse had a couple of inventions one was discovering the media channel, right? And that was, by the way, where we started. We didn't end there, but that was what got our, our start. It's a big but, one. Yeah, it's a big one. So inside the credit card 
statement. Nobody yeah. had discovered that. Remnant space, new Remnant channels. Space. Uh, yeah. And having it come back through the envelope that was already provided, which, by the way, the collateral advantage of that is we would brand our materials. So if we were in a Citibank envelope, we would you know, have Citibank branding, yeah. which um, would comfort consumers. I mean, because, you know, this is my relationship, right? Mm. This is not some third party. This is not some interloper. This is, you know, a genuine Citibank offer. So, um, hmm. so yes, so it, um, it, it, the media was a, the, the model was an invention. The media was an invention. I guess those were the two big inventions and, you know, that propelled synapse. I'm gonna I'm gonna fast forward a little bit in your career because I want to apply that same arbitrage thing to the pharmacy discount card, which obviously was just a deeply profitable, lucrative enterprise that did yeah. tremendously well. The very the very quick thing I'm gonna skip over, which is non-trivial, but in synapse, you let Jay Walker, your partner, incubate new ideas. A lot of them sucked, as you tell the story, and then one of them one day was Priceline. And I we would all know never how. say of my partner Jay Walker that any of his ideas sucked. Just for the record. Okay, just they're, for the record, they were all great. Some of them were greater than others. Sure. But yeah. Just again. Jay Walker, to be clear, your ideas are all great, right? All great. All great. Right. Smartest, but yeah. Forever. Forever. So one yes. of them was particularly great. It's called Priceline. We all know yep. how that turned out. Yep. And I'm not meaning to go off of the story to say it's not important, but I want to apply, how did you figure out the pharmacy discount card? Also, how does that work? Yeah. The pharmacy discount card, it was, there was an insight. And the insight was that the pharmacy benefit manager system, right? which is just the rails that are used by every pharmacy, the word they use is to adjudicate claims, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what the function is. How pharmacy benefit managers came into existence, they came into existence in the 60s, and that was because back in the day when you wanted to be reimbursed by your insurance company, you had to take all these receipts, the consumer, all these receipts, you had to keep them. So much friction. Oh my God. For months, you would keep them. You'd put them in a drawer and you'd keep them. And then they gave you a form. And then you had to, you know, you had to take all that information from the receipt and you had to put it in a form. And then you had to stack everything into an envelope and you send it to the insurance company and they would process it. But it was a pain in the ass for them too. They had to open up the envelopes. They had to check the receipt against what you filled out. And so think about that. To like process one of these things would take an operator like 15 minutes, right? and multiply that by zillions and zillions, okay? So they actually, insurance companies actually kind of paved the way for pharmacy benefit managers back in the 60s as a, you know, a segment, an asset class to ascend to be able to computerize that because back in that day, it was a heavy lift, Mm. right? So that way, instead of taking all those receipts and putting in an envelope, it just happened at the point of sale at the pharmacy, right? And you would get that copay, right, right there. So instead of getting a check back, you know, at the end of the year, right, they would just take it right out at the counter, okay? So um, that's what, that was their function. That's what they were there for. if you had to do it all over again as a segment, they may not have to exist. Sure, um, but they did. But they did. And back in the 60s, by the way, there weren't like seven giant chains that was a bunch of mom and pops. That was pharmacies. Part of the yeah. yeah, sorry, pharmacies. So um, the observation, 
and I stumbled upon this, the observation was this PBM system, which was there to connect, you know, pharmacies and patients and manufacturers, right? And it was built for insurance claims that that mechanism, that mechanic could also support uninsured claims, right? And my analogy was that the Sabre system, because I got to know a little bit about that from Priceline. Sabre system? Sabre is where all your reservations, all your airplane reservations start, is on the Sabre system. There is a common system. Think about that. That way, if, you know, Americans said, I'm sorry, I'm canceling the flight, they can put you on United. Sure. Right? So Sabre is the thing, the backbone for the entire industry, right? So it's as though Sabre, right, which was built for commercial airplanes, could allow private aviations on the same system, right? That was an amazing insight. And what that meant, Noah, is that you could, you could take a claim that was out of network, run it through that system, and get access to the type of pricing that insurance companies had and convey that to the consumer. That was a holy shit. For the consumer. For the consumer. For, for the, the first time ever, they can get... When you're you, out of network... You name a prescription for yeah. one-tenth the price. Yeah, it was more like a 70 80% discount. Sure, but whatever. Yes. Close enough, right? Right. So instead of 50 bucks, it could be 15 Right. And so the consumer sees this card on the counter that promises that mm-hmm. they sign up for the thing, and is the real they don't sign? They just take it. They just take it, hand it to them. It's it's alive on arrival, right? So, and the interesting thing for me, Noah, is that I could not. I realized that that business wasn't a business; it was a project, and that was because it had two fatal flaws that at some point in the future was going to trip it up. And fatal flaw number one was. Why would you need a separate card to do what I just said? Why, everybody understands insurance. Insurance covers some things and doesn't cover other things. And why wouldn't I be able to say to the patient, patient Noah, I'm sorry, you're not covered on this, right? You're not gonna get your $10 copay on this, but you're gonna get a big discount, right? Courtesy of United Health, sure. right? And the reason that they gave me that they wouldn't consider that was, in my mind, totally false because what they said was nobody wants to shit where they eat. Nobody wants to accentuate the negative space. Nobody wants to say, you know, you're on the outside looking in on this one, buddy. They'd rather not have that conversation, but that never made any sense to me, right? Better customer care would be, you know what? Your plan design, which your employer came up with, not us, excludes this, this particular medicine. But that's the bad news. The good news is we're going to give you a big discount. And it's automatic and it's all in the same card, right? Why isn't it that on your, you know, the card that United Health gives you? And I can never properly answer that question to my satisfaction. I, I, the, you know, don't want to shine a light on the negative space was never a good enough answer. Sure, but the business still worked. Well, yeah, because they didn't go in that. They, the insurance companies, for many, many years, they're starting now, but many, many years did not do that. Yep. The second question was, let me get this straight. 
I go into CVS with a card from me, third party, and I present it to the CVS pharmacist, and that card is valid to give Noah a great big discount. Why doesn't CVS just do that, hmm. right? And the answer is CVS and all the other pharmacies have a deal with the government that Medicaid and Medicare get the lowest price. And believe it or not, hmm. we were less than Medicaid and Medicare. Can wow. you imagine that? Yeah. Less. And that meant they had to reset the prices, right? If they made one sale, they had to go lower, right? But there's many ways to defeat that, like buy one stick of gum and the medicine, right? And then it's a combo sale. Then it didn't count. So I never could, I never could wrap my head around those two fatal flaws. So when I built those businesses, the idea was building them incredibly fast hmm. and getting out. The first time we built it, uh, we did have a structured exit, and we had it with what is now United Health. Who who was the who was the payer in that scenario? Like Scriptolief was the name of the company, right? Yeah. Who was it generating revenue from? Who was paying? The drug companies? Uh, well, the consumer, right? The consumer would pay money right. for it. And yes, we would get, they. the drugstore would keep, so let's say it was 25, let's say it was 80 bucks, but it's discounted to 25. The drug, to be clear. The drug. Lexapro, right. whatever it is. Yeah, no. it doesn't matter. The drug. And it's $80. They just, you discount it to 20 with this 20, card. Yeah, so in other words, the card, they put the codes in and they say, okay, Lexapro, yep. 20 bucks, yep. right? The pharmacist collects 20 bucks, yep. right? And they would keep most, but we would get a piece. Sure. And it was all automatic, right? It was all, you know, through the system. And we would get, you know, we would get checks twice a month from everybody. For however many yeah. drugs you facilitated. Yeah, that's right. Got it. So the, both those businesses, and to give you an idea, I mean, that was, by the way, fertile ground. Nobody had come up with this. Yep. We were able to, with Script Relief, our third year, our third year, third year, it's just amazing. We were able to have a $100 million EBITDA. Year $100 three. million dollars to the bottom line by year three. Yep. That is almost unheard of, if I know, not I, formally I, unheard of. I can almost right. go on record and say that's unheard of in this I, market. I was, you know, it spoiled me for life. Yeah. Right? I don't think I'll ever do that again. <laughs> I don't think and, most people um, will. So it was started, by the way, <clears throat> with $2 million of my capital and uh, $10 million from, again, the company that is now United Health. So $12 million, I got the company started, and by year three, our third year, $100 million bucks. I mean, It was crazy. That is crazy. But that was, it was, it was just, it was such a good, it was a free product. So think about this, free. It's... I, I call it a coupon on steroids for steroids. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, so, just 100 million year three is just insane. It's a coupon. So it's in a coupon, sc- but every time somebody used a coupon, we're making money. It was just crazy. In the scope of your life now. All right. So so at this point, you dropped yeah. 100 million down to the bottom line. Clearly, you were in a totally new income bracket, to say the least. And Well, in, I mean, in we were life. putting all the money back into starting up. Sure. Stuff. But you'd yeah. sold Synapse. You've done well at this point. Yeah. Um, I listened to, I think this came from Sam Parr actually on his podcast. They were talking about the happiness number and there was a debate. There was a Harvard study a few years ago. I want to hear your take on this Mm. that said over 70K, it's diminishing returns of happiness if you make more. Sam said that's bullshit. I tend to agree. He said the number is probably closer to 50 million. What was your experience like? Well, uh, I would say my dad had a great expression, which is I've been rich and I've been poor and rich is better. Okay. He actually never really was rich, as we would think about it. The 
thing about having means, we'll cut out that, is that um, kind of fear goes away, right? It is a relief not to have to worry about paying the rent, right? And uh, a lot of people do. And, you know, I'm continuing to do what I do, but it's a choice. And um, you could have stopped a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Long and grown tomatoes. Yeah. But it's a choice. And, you know, you and grown tomatoes. I could have grown yeah, tomatoes. There you go. Yeah. Could have grown that's tomatoes. The next, that's the next business, right? I'm not going to Starting a tomato farm. Not going to grow tomatoes, no. But the, um, but, you know, and frankly, there's a lot of pressure because we're putting a lot of money into a lot of companies and it's, you know, it, it, it kind of hurts a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, I can stop at any time. And, uh, but I don't want to. It's kind of a disease. It really is a disease. It's a sickness. We talk about this a lot at the Uncharted yeah. dinners that you yeah. get. You have an exit. I mean, we, a lot of the entrepreneurs who are part of the community say, look, I had my first exit and made some money. I went and partied. I traveled a little bit. And then a month later, I was like, all right, this, well, this, this, this ain't it. Yeah. <laughs> this, this certainly ain't it. No. And um, the fact is, not too many people really know how to start companies, right? And, um, the fact is also that many of the people, many of the VCs that we know, even though they ladle out, ladle out money to startups, they've never started a company themselves. Yeah. They try to prosecute the war from the Pentagon and not the trench. And there's nothing like the experience of being in that trench hmm. and getting muddy and bloody and, you know, your life is in line and blah, 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 blah. If you were, this is a little bit of a cliche question, but I want to hear your take. If you were 22 and graduating college right now, knowing mm. what you know now, in this market, right? It's, right. What is it? November 2022? It's November 2022. The market's a little crazy. You know what you know now, but you're 22. What are you going to go do? Well, the first thing I would have done is tell myself I made a mistake. I should have quit school a few years ago. Mm. So, do you, uh, Are you going on record and saying you advise that? Well, I actually have a talk that I give to schools um, because when I am asked to lecture at a university, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, right? Feel free not to invite me to have sure. talk at your school. But um, I'm invariably invited by the entrepreneurs, you know, society. Uh, and um, my little riff is knowing your audience. I say, okay, show of hands who here wants to be an entrepreneur. And of course, all the hands go up. And then I say, who here is planning on quitting school? No hands go up. And then I say, you're all doing the wrong thing. And I show slides. And I said, Mark Zuckerberg quit sophomore year Harvard. Gates quit sophomore year Harvard. They all quit in their, you know how all rock and roll people die at 27? All the great entrepreneurs quit school in their sophomore year. Michael Dell, sophomore year, right? University of Texas, Austin, the list goes on. And that is because, right, school is backwards looking. Taken another way, Warren Buffett said, if the paths to riches could be found in books, every librarian, every librarian would be a billionaire. It's a good quote. Yeah. And, you know, an entrepreneur, right, the people that we're talking about, they're about inventing the future. And what you get is the historical record which really does not sing to them. Sure. So a, a regret of mine is that I started at 36 and not 16, hmm. right? 
And because the great ones really start early. I do ask, and you know I ask this question, which is of an entrepreneur or somebody who says they want one, I say, tell me about your lemonade stand. And if they said, I don't have a, I never had a lemonade stand, it's like, right, tell me about your paper route when we had a newspaper. And if they said they didn't have that, tell me about your lawn care business. And if they didn't have that, like, what did you start? But it's interesting, entrepreneurs, when they're 10, 11, 12, they start a business. They just start, they like the idea of, holy shit, I can make money. I can just, I can make money. I can squeeze lemons, right? I can take mom's lemons, cut them in half, squeeze, put a little water and sugar, put out a stand, look cute, right? And sell lemonade for three bucks, right? Cost of goods, zero to me. And I keep all the money. I mean, that's just infectious. So you would have dropped out if it was right now? Yeah. Yeah. And what what industry would you have wanted to go into? I don't know. I don't know. It would be... Um, wouldn't be crypto. <laughs> it might have been six months ago. No, no, no. You always knew that I was not I a crypto t- I totally did. Yeah. To, to be clear, yeah. at the Uncharted dinners, I've told this story. Over the course of the last 18 months, somehow, first dinner number one, Gary Vee was there, May 2021, and he was basically the only voice at the table saying, hey, everyone, please pay attention to these NFT things. And then over the course of the next one, somehow every dinner seemed to have one seat more of the 20 that was full of crypto people. Yeah. And now it's back to maybe one, Max. Yeah. And you have been, to your credit, mostly bearish. Yeah. Um, with crypto, with NFTs, I feel differently because it's about the chain of custody. Sure. Right? We were talking about that with Entertainment Weekly and um, the music stuff and how to pay people. But um, crypto... I don't want to get on a riff here, but they call it cryptocurrency, and that's a fallacy because it isn't a currency. It's not used as a currency. It's used as an article of speculation, right? And it's really an illustration of the world being awash with too much liquidity and too much capital that you got to park somewhere. Um, there are use cases that make sense, like, um, you know, uh, if uh, the Jews in 1943 in Germany had crypto, they wouldn't be swallowing diamonds and going over the border. They, you know, they'd use crypto instead. Uh, but you know, and people do use that as a use case in you know fraught nations where you have you know, in, yeah, in, you know, they're bad trying governments it. and stuff like people that. People are but trying it. People are trying, but that's really a tiny, tiny Touch use case. case. Yeah, and um, so it's it's not a currency. A, it's an article of speculation, and it's always going to be the method of wealth transfer for the dark web, hmm. right? So the bad actors are going to graduate, gravitate to that because you know it's untraceable, right? So it's um, it's not regulated now. You know, it's it's outlawed in India and China. If I got that right, I mean, think about that. I mean, yeah. you know, that's three billion people between those two countries or close. So you sure as hell wouldn't be going into crypto if you're graduating. No, right I wouldn't now. have done that. I um, I wouldn't do that. Thank you for getting me back. <laughs> you're welcome. But um, you know, I do. Um, God, it's such a great time to start stuff. It was greater eight months ago, but it's still. You still have. It's a good time to fund stuff. Yeah, for sure. you still have. Um, you know, your the capital formation of this country, and this country is a unbelievable country to start stuff and. You've heard me talk about that, but if you look at, you know, one of my little things is that there are 25 companies, or there were a year and a half ago when I looked at this, not 25, 19 companies that in the last 25 years developed a valuation of 100 billion or more, 
right? So 19 companies, 25 years old or less, 100 billion, right? And of those companies, of those 19 companies, eight are in China. And I would say, and this is a little unflattering, that that doesn't count because it's a closed market, right? Everywhere in the world you've got Amazon, except you got Alibaba in China. Everywhere in the world you got Uber, but you got Didi in China. And that's because, you know, Chinese government kind of, you know, kind of feeds its own and you're really shut out of it. So nine, uh, eight, eight out of 19 are Chinese. There is one in Canada, one in Europe of these companies. And the balance, nine are American. Nine are American. Hmm. And um, if you look at the countries around the world that have started valuable startups, there really is very few. I mean, it's, it's, the U.S. is particularly good at doing this. We suck at a lot of things, right? We suck at making sneakers, but starting up companies, we're actually quite good at that. Which, by the way, to me, leads into a discussion about immigration, which is, I think, we should, the immigration law should say, if you have an IQ of 140 or more. Come on in. Come on in. We want, we want you know, we want a monopoly on brains. And if you do look, and I know you know this, but if you look at the folks who start companies, a whole lot of first gens in this country, you know, a whole lot of folks from the subcontinent, from, you know, Asia, and they come here and, you know, get their PhDs and start stuff. I mean, it's an amazing What thing. could be better for America? Really? It, it, Truly. Absolutely. Truly. We should have a monopoly of the great brains. You know, you're, you're a genius, come here. And I'm going to make you a citizen awfully fast. And I'm going to make it easy, right? And we all know the shame of it is great university system. We train a lot of PhDs. It's a catch and release program. We send them back because they can't get, you know, they can't get their visa. I mean, how crazy is that? Do you think higher ed's in trouble here? Do you think it's going to go away? Boy, um, that is, um, I worry about that. Um, I agree wholeheartedly yeah. with what you said. Yeah. As you process, this is just a quick anecdote. I was lucky enough to intern for you when I was 19, and I worked for you while I was in college, right? I Not went, too many people would say lucky enough. Yeah, sure. You know, following but I'm, I'm going yeah. to stand by it. And, right. Well, um, I do sign the paycheck still. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, um, I was lucky enough to work when I was in college, and I was an undergrad business student. And you know, I went to BU, and it was fine. But I, to this day, say that maybe three times in my career have I actually used something that I was taught in the yeah. classroom. Yeah in the real world and the stuff I'm doing yeah. now and building and companies and funds and the whole thing. It's totally, totally different. By the way, I felt the same way at Time Inc., right? That what you learn in a big company is how to navigate a big company, right? Like, don't go to Joe the lawyer on Wednesday afternoon because that's when he goes and he yeah. you know, goes out and he goes with his buddies. I got really good at studying, I'll tell yeah. you that. You get yeah. really good at studying. Anyway, so do you think higher ed's in trouble? Do I think higher ed's in trouble? Uh, I think it should be. How about that? I agree. I, I think it isn't, but it should be. And um, we, you know, it, it, we really should focus on giving people vocational tools, useful vocational, vocational tools. Vocational too, yeah. Vocational too, but vocational tools. Like, you know, teach them how to code. I mean, if you know how to code. Weapon. Oh, my God. Total weapon. Right, total weapon. So you want to elevate people? You know, teach them that. I mean, you also can't, you know, you can't get, I mean, we, of course, have a stake in a big private aviation company. You can't get mechanics. 
right, at any price. Uh, I um, was in, I met yesterday, just to drop names, um, the governor-elect of Pennsylvania. Hmm. And Fetterman. No, no, no sorry, no, that's a senator. senator. Yeah, sorry. Shapiro. Shapiro. Josh Shapiro. And um, what he was saying is they've got a deficit of 80,000 welders, right? Unlike New York, Pennsylvania does a lot of fracking. Can't get welders. Hmm. Price of a welder, 125000 hmm. bucks. I mean, you know. Good job. Good job. I mean, it's a path. Better than a lot of the stuff out there, 100%. Better than a lot. And, you know. Hundred twenty five by hundred twenty five thousand. You can you know you can buy a house. You can do any. I mean, it's just right. I mean, so yeah. And should we be taught teaching medieval literature, or should we be teaching people how to weld and people how to code? And you know, we should I think be more vocationally minded. And um, you know, when you say Noah that you graduated and there's only three things you use if that may, it might be generous right. frankly i learned the right. stuff i did doing research and yep. working on deals and yep. stuff with you when i yep. was 19 and 20 right that was the stuff that taught me how to be an inventor and an entrepreneur yeah. like that was yeah. that was the real stuff yeah and um we should somehow figure out to get that real world experience whatever it, it could be you know welding coding you know business deals yeah. and bring it into, you know, a teaching environment so that people have that preparedness right. um, that they should have and could have. Hmm. Um, we've been going for a while here. So we, we went longer than the 45 minutes that we were doing. Okay. Hopefully we still have the audience's attention. Um, let's talk about Uncharted. Okay. The origin of that is you called me in April 2021 right. and said, I'm interested in building some community. You seem to have a thing with people and know some young entrepreneurs. I have a pretty good old guard of people who've been around the block. How do we meld the two? And we landed on, all right, let's do a dinner at your house, which really was what kickstarted all of this. Um, what was your original intent with that? And what has the intent, intent evolved to? Well, in Inspired by this was a conversation that I had eight years ago with Alan Patrikoff, who I think Alan is a god. If you don't know Alan, Alan is 88. As far as I'm concerned, and other people have corroborated this, Alan invented venture capital, right? Invented venture capital. And um, he was at my office one day. We were talking about a bunch of things. We've done a number of deals together. And uh, all of a sudden, he looks down at his watch and he said, my God, I got to get down to Whitehall Street. I'm late. Where's the closest subway? Like, I've got an imprint of the subway map in my brain. Yeah, right. right. What was remarkable was here's a guy and, um, you know, in his 80s and he's taking the subway. And the guy invented venture capital. Yeah, he can afford a Maybach if he wants. Exactly. Ten of them. Ten, right. And he doesn't do that. Yeah. He goes on the subway. He did go to Burning Man this year and run the marathon. I know. Legend. You know, he is. You're He's next, a legend. By the way. We'll, we'll get you out there. I'm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm weakening on that sure. point. Um, so we're trying to find out where he can get the subway to go down to Whitehall Street. And I said, Alan, you know, it's going to take a minute. Tell me what's the most important thing. What's the most important thing? Unscripted question. I thought I was going to hear about team, TAM, business model, whatever. What's the most important thing? And the subject, of course, was relative to starting a business or business success. 
And he gave me an answer that was interesting, confounding, uh, and, um, you know, and inspiring at the same time, which was be the entrepreneur's friend. Be the entrepreneur's friend. And unpacking that upon reflection, part of that is because being an entrepreneur is very lonely business, right? You were a hockey player. This is like being a goalie that, you know, there's six pucks on ice and no defensemen, and all you're doing is banging the pucks back, right? There's never enough time. There's never, you know, enough research, and you got to make a call. And sometimes that call leads to riches, and sometimes you get bloodied, right? But you got to make the call, and you can't share that with your team because you're going to freak them out. So... That's what makes it lonely. You just got to keep it to yourself and you got to keep it together. You can't share your fears with folks because your, you know, your teams will smell that and they'll start to vibrate. You got to display conviction, confidence, whether you're, you have that conviction and you have that confidence or not. And um, lonely business, that's, I think, the starting thread that you know, entrepreneurs need a little bit um they need a little bit of they need a little bit of support they need a community they need to feel comfortable they need to be told here is a safe space and it's okay here you know it's okay here and this might be unique of all the places that you can share all those concerns you can ask those questions because this is a group of your peers this is not going to get out. It's not going to get, we're not going to, you know, if you say, oh, my God, I was petrified, we're not going to think anything differently of you, and nobody's going to know about that. So there's so many environments that they get a group of entrepreneurs, a school of entrepreneurs, and what they want to do is sell them some. But this is meant to be something that, you know, there's no reporters, no, you know, tales, you know, out of school, and nobody's going to sell you anything. So permission to be vulnerable, permission to tell the truth, permission to share, permission, by the way, to do the same thing with your peer group, right? It's a support network. And frankly, the business of being an entrepreneur is really, really hard and really, really fraught. Um, you have a lot of careers and a lot of lives banking on your decisioning when you think about it that way, it really weighs upon you. And wouldn't it be great to have a group of an encounter group of people that you can share all that stuff? And knowing that many of those people in the room or in the community have gone through what you have gone through ten times over, and you got somebody to talk to with that, right? It's almost like recovery, right? Hmm. So anyway, that was the thought, and or the part of the thought, part of the threads of the thought. And, um, uh, you know, turns out entrepreneurs need it, want it, come back for it all the time, are very thankful that something like this exists. I think they all say that it um, were not for us, it wouldn't exist. So it's nice to be able to give that to them and us. And um, we get a lot out of it too. We have this great community. Um, which leads to collaborations, which leads to, you know, which leads to an ability to go to the network and ask advice. And, um, yeah, I think 
right now it's kind of working pretty well. Right? I'd say it's working pretty well, yeah. yeah. It's come a long way since that first dinner in May 2021. Right. Pretty cool. Yeah. Anything else you should talk about? Wrap it. Anything else you want to talk about? No, I'm um, I'm good. I'm I'm yeah. No, I'm good. And thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Thanks, Thanks Brendan. Brendan. Shout out to yeah. Brendan. Yeah, this is very cool. Cool moment for me as well to uh, to be sitting here. It's been since interning, starting as an intern, and now sitting here working together years on later. Uncharted years yeah. later, the involvement in the fund and so many other things. It's pretty cool. So yeah. honored and grateful, Michael. Thank you. Thank you.